passbys. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of gathering together as family. Thank you for allowing us and supporting us in breaking bread together, having this ability to fellowship together this way, in this precious way, in your Son's good name, our Lord and Savior. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us, that are suffering right now uh, in a multitude of ways. We just pray and that they understand that we're with them in spirit, that uh, we pray that you return them to us, to the fold as soon as possible. Your will be done, of course. Help them, heal them, keep their spirit strong in their condition. Father, this we pray as well. We pray for those that are still lost in this world, that are without hope, that cling to things that have no real substance to them, that are fading away. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to make even a prayer like this real to us in an evening like this, something to rejoice over. Father, we just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the Lord is our confidence, part 34. It all began right here. We've been coming back here uh, to Proverbs 3.26 incrementally now because we're just about ready to close up shop. I say that uh, conceptually. Uh, There haven't been a whole lot of additional concepts put on the table. I know that it's sort of stretching out in terms of the number of messages, but he's just sort of revisiting things. I think it's almost like, you know, when you tie a shoestring together, you just sort of, you're just pulling the shoestring and tightening things up, making sure that we don't leave this series uh, without everything, all the the good stuff intact. Um, So here's here's sort of the launching pad uh, 34 parts ago. Proverbs 30, uh, excuse me, 326 For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Now, on Wednesday, uh, excuse me, on Sunday, after reading Paul's profound words in Philippians 3, we came to the following conclusion that he possessed revolution. And when I say revolutionary, I'm not talking about, you know, revolutionary war, wartime things. I'm talking about revolutionary in his time, uh, in the audience that, he was around, uh, and we can relate to this because some of us, uh, you know, go out into the world in the way that we think is, is revolutionary, uh, is, is odd to most individuals. And so this is what we glean from Philippians 3, revolutionary thinking, at least one of the things. We are to examine ourselves, compile all of our street credibility into one big heap of creature credit and light a match to it. This is precisely what Paul did, and he explained it in Philippians 3, 7 and 9. And you know what? He was blessed for it, and that's a beautiful thing. We also arrived at this pearl from Philippians 3, 9, up here on the board, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So contrary to self-righteousness is Christ's righteousness, the mainstay of the new creature, Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, this righteousness bears good fruit by grace through faith, such as our topic, confidence. Having this righteousness, knowing that you're right before God, having faith that you're right before God builds confidence, the good kind, the kind that lasts, the kind that holds up under pressure. 
Uh, a lot of individuals in this world have a bravado to them, but it's not real confidence. Uh, I just described literally every unbeliever. There's, the best they have is confidence in their flesh, self-confidence. Compared to God's, the confidence we uh, obtain from God through Christ's righteousness doesn't even compare. It's basically, it pales in comparison. So last week, beginning with last Wednesday, the Spirit began encouraging us, reminding us, even though we fail, God's loving kindness is renewed every morning. Even though we fail. And everyone in here, is, I was just thinking about, you know, uh, Jane and um, Meredith and other families in the congregation that are going through things. Um, that, that's a test. Every day is a test. Um, and, and you have to uh, exercise a certain faith to pass the test. And so there's always a temptation that leads to failure. There's always a temptation to release the promises of God even, uh, which is actually in of itself a type of sin. Because you're supposed to be clinging to the promises of God. To let it go is to disregard them. And that's against the will of God. And anything against the will of God, by definition, is a sin. Anything that opposes His will. And so it's good to know that God's loving kindness is renewed every morning because we're all failing somehow. We all fail uh, every day. Some of you already know the passage we're going to turn to, but tonight we're going to stretch our viewpoint a bit by reading the verses leading up to Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. Uh, it's a fantastic read. I haven't read it in a long time, and I read it uh, this morning when I was preparing, and I said, uh, wow, what a fantastic thing. We need to definitely include this. What we're going to find is that the, uh, the overall context of Lamentations chapter 3 gives verses uh, 22 and 23 much greater amplitude. So go to, go to Lamentations 3 verse 1. Lamentations 3 verse 1. <clears throat> Lamentations 3, verse 1. should be right after Jeremiah, I think. It's kind of a small book. It's tucked in there. Lamentations 3, 1. <clears throat> I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. And so here's an individual that's writing under the wrath of God. And you do not want that wrath on you. And it drove, it drove him low, in other words. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places he has made me dwell, like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. 
He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I have become a laughingstock to all my people. They are mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has made me cover in, excuse me, cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Whew. That's heavy. Now, I suppose if we all stopped reading this passage right here, and that might even be an analog to what some of you go through in your own self-examination. You might lament. You might feel this kind of weightiness in your life. My strength is perished. My hope, and so is my hope from the Lord. You might feel that sense of depression even. So you can relate to where this, uh, this writer, and most theologians think it's Jeremiah, but we'll just call him the writer, where this writer is coming from. And so I suppose if we stopped reading this passage right here, we'd be inundated with similar oppressive thoughts and emotions. And if we were to spend too much time dwelling on such things, we'd likely end up in that same, let's call it a hopeless place. What's worse than hopelessness? Uh, really, not much. We'd end up in that hopeless place where the author uh, ended up. So here's a principle for all of us. While it is critically important that we confess our sins, agree with God regarding them, okay? We aren't to be crippled during the process. This person understood that they were under the wrath of God because they understood that they were, or at least had been, opposed to Him. That's confession. It's just another way of saying confession. It's a person who agrees with God and understands the circumstances and understands even the principle of reaping and sowing. So we have to draw something out of this for ourselves. If it's, it's critically important that we confess our sins but aren't crippled in the process. So up here on the board, just to get us situated, I'm going to go a little slower. And this is the encouragement. Why confession is so important. And please do not do that Catholic thing and think confession is just you go into a booth or you go on your knees and it's just this line item, all the things that you know that you've done wrong and you can sort of put in a little box and, you know, identify. Don't do that religious thing. Confession means to say the same thing as God. Okay? So why confession is so important. The primary reason for confession isn't persistent condemnation. Rather, it is the first step towards deliverance. The perfect example is salvation proper, which starts with what? Repentance. Well, you have to understand something about sin. You have to confess it to be able to even repent and turn from it, because that's what repentance means. So a perfect example is the one we start off with in the spiritual life, 
which is salvation. So the primary reason for confession isn't to be condemned all the time. It's the first step towards deliverance. Salvation proper is our grandest example of this Allah repentance. If then, the reason for confessing our sins before the holy God of the universe is deliverance. Think about that. The reason for confession is deliverance. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever to stop reading this passage at verse 18. Because that passage just takes you to the, to the depths of despair and, and hopelessness. That would be a tragedy to stop reading there. In order to paint the full picture of God's grace, we must read on. Look at verse 19. It starts off, remember... And remember here, he's, uh, most think that he's directing this towards the Lord, but it's more conceptual. It's, remember you, Lord, in a sense, with me. In other words, let's remember this thing together. Remember, Lord, I remember, you remember, let's remember together. Let's think of it that way. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. What's he doing? You see what's going on there? He's recovering. He's getting pushed low. And he says, wait a minute, let me, let me remember. Let me, let me remember some critical things that I know to be true about you, Lord. I know your hand's heavy on me. I know I deserve it. But I want to remember now what's really going on. So the complete idea here is that there's something critical that needs to be brought to the forefront. Something that ushers in deliverance. So I'll give it to you this way. Remember, remembers, recall. We have those three verses, 19 through 21, right? Think of that as one sort of complete idea. That something critical needs to come back into play. To extinguish the hopelessness. Lamentations 3, 19 to 21 is a wonderful reminder of our access to God's grace. Remember, we haven't been called to bondage, but rather to freedom. Galatians 5.13 And here's the key. The temptation, though, is to allow the flesh to dominate us with guilt and condemnation. And God is opposed to this. 1 Corinthians 10.13 Let's set this in our souls because this is going to be here for a little bit. Remember, remembers, recall these three verses. Uh, it's a wonderful reminder. And keep the context of the, the lament in chapter 3 leading up to this 1 through 18 verses. It's a wonderful reminder of our access to God's grace. And that's always where deliverance begins. We haven't been called to bondage but rather to freedom. The temptation, though, and this is where we screw it up. This is where we let the flesh dominate us. And it's funny because there's, there's, there's um, two separate temptations in view. There's the temptation that got you in the predicament. <laughs> Obviously, that gave birth to some sin. So here you are in some situation that you shouldn't be in. But then there's the issue of recovery. And sin figures it's got you on your back already and it's going to try to hold you down. So you're not going to get back up. And the temptation is 
to allow that to happen. The temptation is to forget what you have as a child of God, the right you have to get back up, and the encouragement from God to do that very thing to bring glory to Him. He doesn't want you to stay down. The flesh does, because that's where it can control you. God doesn't want you to stay down. God wants you to get right back up, even though you failed terribly, because it brings glory to Him. So God is opposed to that, that temptation. Go to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. I'll show you uh, what the Spirit's trying to say here. First Corinthians 10, 13. Okay, so think of the last, uh, the second to last sentence on the board. The temptation is to allow the flesh to dominate us with guilt and condemnation. Okay, now, we're going to talk about temptation here. Verse 13. No temptation have overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Will provide the way of escape also. That's a promise from God. That's the turnaround that we even see back in Lamentations 3. I remember. Wait a minute. I remember. There's a way out of this. It's the grace of God. There's a way out of this thing. God provides, right? So concentrate. What exactly is it that you are delivered from based on 1 Corinthians 10.13? What are you delivered from? The answer is temptation itself. You're actually delivered from temptation itself. That's a wonderful blessing. And what is this temptation we have under our microscope right now? Hint, it's in the point on the board. Let's read again. Remember, remember is recall. Lamentation 3, 19 and 21 is a wonderful reminder of our access to God's grace. We haven't been called to bondage, but rather to freedom. The temptation is to allow the flesh to dominate us with guilt and condemnation. That's the temptation. And if we stop weaving these two things together, we just figured out that God also promises a way out of that temptation. So the temptation is real, but God allows us a way out. So the temptation on the table is to allow ourselves to be dominated by the flesh, giving it essentially control as it leads us back into bondage experientially. God says it's all a big ruse, big form of deceit. Remember the uh, deceitfulness of sin? There you go. God says it's all a ruse. It's a big deceptive game that the kingdom of darkness plays, that our own flesh plays on us. And he says, just walk away from it. You say, is it that easy? Yeah, it's actually that easy. But there's a caveat, and we're going to talk about that. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that we have our principle, we have our promise from God, right? He says, it says, He will provide the way of escape also. 
right in Holy Scripture. He will provide the way of escape also from this temptation to allow the flesh to dominate us. So you then ask, well, what is the escape? What is this escape that Paul wrote to the Corinthians about? Well, that's what we just noted in Lamentations 3. You don't even have to go any further than the title. You just have to remember. Right? You just have to remember. Wait a minute, I have access to God's grace. I can call on God's grace anytime I want. God gives grace to who? There you go. That's all you have to do is get the heck out of your own way. You got in there because you were arrogant. You'll stay there because you're arrogant. Deliverance is given by grace to the humble. The righteous man lives by what? Faith. So you have to have faith that that door, that escape hatch is, is there. You walk out. You remember. So the key word here is remember. Why do you think the Spirit keeps having me stand behind this pulpit and pound the sentence, read your Bibles into your heads? It's so that you are equipped, Allah, Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, it's my job, equipped with the instrument that God the Holy Spirit uses to deliver you from said temptation. Again, it's so that you are equipped with the instrument that God the Holy Spirit uses to deliver you from said temptation. The instrument, of course, is the Word of God. Go to John 14.26. John 14.26. The instrument is the Word of God. Think of uh, Hebrews 4.12 as well, right? The sword. Uh, John 14, 26. The instrument that delivers, that the Spirit uses to deliver us is the Word of God. John 14, 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. And guess who brings it into remembrance? He does. And bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. That's why we are not to be drunk with wine, but we are to be filled with the Spirit. Bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. We can't be intoxicated with the world. We have to be filled with the Spirit so that He can bring to your remembrance all that He said to you. In other words, the Word. Jesus said, My Spirit will remind you. My Spirit will be right there with you to remind you. I guess the question at that point is, are you listening? Are you still arrogant? Has your arrogance blinded you? I hope you see how this is all lining up. I'm putting, there's probably three to four, maybe even five concepts. That's why I'm going slow. I hope you see how it lines up. And it's beautiful when you see the big picture plan of God working in your life. You have the God-given right. You have the right to access the Word of God. Unbelievers can't even do that. They can read the Bible, but they, they, have, they don't know what they're even, what's going on. Nothing supernatural happens for them. Only a believer has this access to truth. 
And we have it. And that's a promise from God. So you have a God-given right to the Word of God. He has made it abundantly available to every one of you. Again, look at where we started and don't forget the abject misery the writer describes in the previous verses. Look at verse 19. Are you still in uh, Lamentations 3.19? Okay, go back there. Probably put your tab there. And I don't mean the first Diet Cola either. Remember that? The first Diet Cola. Tab, some of these kids, some of the kids, what were you talking about? That's what happens when you're 50. Don't forget the misery the writer described in verses 1 through 18. Verse 19, remember my affliction, my wandering, the worm, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. You see the turning around? Abject misery, and then a, then a turning around. Again, on the board, this passage, this three-verse passage, is a wonderful reminder of our access to God's grace. Just remember. Sometimes we just have to remember God's grace, God's promises. We haven't been called to bondage, but rather to freedom. In other words, if we forget the promises, we just remain there, stagnant, stuck in bondage. We've been called to freedom. The temptation, though, is to allow the flesh to dominate us with guilt and condemnation. You know, how did you get there? You're here again? You might as well give up. There's no hope for you. Isn't that what the writer just said? I felt my, my, my hope was stripped from me. It's almost like the definition of, of, of depression. My hope is stripped from me. I don't, I don't see the light. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine what that actually looks If you're on the outside looking in, imagine being God, the Father, our Father, our loving Father, and hearing one of his children say, I can't see the light. I don't, I don't see the way out of this thing. That's unbelievable for him to, to see that. It's, it's, it's um, without any um, harshness. It's an abomination. What do you mean you don't, what are you, what are you talking about you don't see the light? That's how blind people can get. That's how much the flesh can dominate a person. God, of course, is opposed to all of that. He says he's given us an escape. So here's what you need to remember. And it's right here where it's designed to be in the word of God. You ready? Verse 22. Here's what you need to remember. And this was the turning point. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And that is our instigating uh, passage, verse 22 and 23. That's what we were getting to. But I'm so glad the Spirit led us up to it the way he did with all the lamenting and then the transition, the remembering, because that's encouraging. For all of us. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation 
of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach. For the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. Remember that. You might be going through hell and high water right now, but God promises to deliver you. How incredibly edifying is this passage of Holy Scripture. It's absolutely amazing. You see the complete depth of someone's hopelessness. And then you see the light switch flip. Wait a minute, I remember. God's faithfulness is renewed every morning. His loving kindness is renewed every morning. He loves me, so He might discipline me. He may allow me to get in this situation. Some of you can relate. But He also says to His glory, He'll pull me out by grace. Amen? That's a beautiful thing for all of us to remember. So do yourself a big favor. Read this passage. Learn it. Love it. Listen to this message again if you must. Because once it has been digested into your soul, it can and will be used as an instrument for your deliverance from the temptation to wallow in self-pity and self-condemnation. Let me say it again. When you understand what's being taught here this evening, when you have the Word of God, when you lambano, when you possess it, you don't just read it, you own it. You pray on it. You meditate on it. You understand it. Once you have that, it can and will be used as an instrument for your deliverance from the very temptation to wallow in self-pity and self-condemnation. Remember, that's where sin gets its strength, to put you on your back. But it's self. You understand how I keep using, I, I use that self on purpose here. Self-pity. Self-condemnation. That keeps coming up, doesn't it? We've seen how many versions of this self thing. Pretty much any time we have self-something, uh, it causes pain. Anytime we're the origin, if you would, of something, there's pain associated with it. Self-pity, self-condemnation, self-esteem, uh, self-confidence, self-whatever. You fill in the blank. Self-anything always leads to pain and suffering. Self-righteousness. When you learn the Word of God, it pays supernatural dividends. Hence our running reminder this evening. Remember, remembers, recall. Just remember. You want to you turn, turn that thing around? You want to turn that current estate of yours, the one that's dragging you down to the depths, to a sense of hopelessness and despair? You want to turn that around? Remember. Remember. So it's a wonderful reminder of our access to God's grace. We haven't been called to bondage but to freedom. The temptation is to allow the flesh to dominate us with guilt and condemnation. 
In other words, don't remember. Of course, God is opposed to that. Here's the key point that prompted us to keep on reading Lamentations 3, beyond verse 18, where the author was, for lack of a better term, bleeding out up here on the board, why confession is so important. The primary reason for confession isn't persistent condemnation. Rather, it is the first step towards deliverance. Remember that. That's why we confess. We can't move forward until we recognize and see and agree with God on whatever's disjointed in our lives. And it's not just line items, my friends, as we talked about on Sunday. Really, it's you. It's your life. Don't just be religious and say, well, you know, it's this, this, and this. No, no. It's you. That's what you have to look at when you look in the mirror. That's what you have to agree to God on, not just little line items, because that's easy. That's what youngsters in the faith do. Nothing wrong with it. It's important. But at the end of the day, God wants all of you. He doesn't want your little religiosity that makes the rest of your life comfortable and un, uh, unobstructed upon, right? or unobstructed. I don't know if that's the right word. Unintruded. Is that even a word? You know what I'm saying. It's going to make it up. Todd, I can make it up, right? Todd's like, I do it all the time. So the pain we suffer from sinning is real and it's nasty. The pain we suffer from sinning is real and it's nasty. The thing to remember about this suffering is that while it is allowed by God, it is always somehow a function of sin. The pain, the suffering, there's always some way, you know, six degrees to seven to uh, Kevin Bacon type thing. It's, there's always a, a, a pathway back to sin. There's always a reason. There was no misery in this world before sin. Just saying. It wasn't until sin came on the scene that people even saw the pain of, a sh of, of shame. <gasps> Fig leaves. The loss of confidence. Hey, I was totally confident before being buck naked. Now all of a sudden I'm ashamed. What happened? Sin. Sin. So it's always any kind of suffering and pain, even though it's allowed by God, it's always some, somehow a function of sin, whether in self or even through others. Whether in self or even through others. You might say, well, um, you know, what if, what if you got sick or something? Well, that didn't happen before the fall. Dying thou shalt die. Dying spiritually, you die physically. That didn't happen either. So even the bodily decay that we, you know, uh, want even members of our congregation to be delivered from, it traces back to sin. The pain of it, what goes on, it goes back to sin. It all goes back to sin. It's an escapable truth. And then there's variants of it. So we have to think about that. This is why Paul summarizes his entire life with Philippians 1.21. Go there. Philippians 1, verse 21. Paul knew this, and he summarized his entire life as follows. And you might think of it as encapsulating his own sin and all the sin he had to deal with, even as a shepherd, as a friend, as a loved one. 
he summarized it all this way. And, and I think at a certain point, we all get here. We all get here. Philippians 1.21, for me, when you get there, when you truly you know, understand what Paul was getting, to live is Christ. To die is gain. For me to die in, I get, that's the biggest promotion of all. That's the celebration. I don't, it's the funniest. I still go back there. You guys are probably like, shut up. What the heck do we celebrate in this world? For real, what is all the stuff we celebrate? It's incredible, all the things that we celebrate. And then we either hardly ever celebrate uh, baptisms like a small celebration. And then death. I'm not saying there can't be mourning, but you know what I'm getting at, right? Death is amazing. I'm so stoked. For, I'm like, you know, in a weird way, jealous. Like, what the heck? What's up, Frank? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's incredible. Heaven? Earth? Blech. Right? This body, other people's bodies. Ugh. Heaven is unbelievable. That's what he's saying. He's like, to me, to live is Christ. This is suffering for him. He said we're going to suffer. He said we're going to be persecuted. We know our bodies are going to decay on us and betray us, uh, both physically and spiritually. Uh, it's just an awful roommate to have, be stuck with. So all that, that whole thing, and then we've got to worry about everybody else's stupid, decaying flesh, throwing stones at us in the process, like we don't have enough problems. All of that is living for Christ. Dying is deliverance from it. Up here on the board. To live is Christ and to die is gain. We are sojourners here on earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. Philippians 3.20 We never make it until we die. Or are raptured first, of course. And are ultimately sanctified, made perfect in Christ. So do not become depressed about failing. Just keep plugging on. Remember. When you remember in humility, you're able to turn around. God always provides a door, an escape route. Always. The temptation on the table is to stay down, is to listen to the flesh that says, you stay down. I'm dominating you. I want you to stay down in your misery, in your self-condemnation, in your self-pity, in your self-esteem issues, in your self-confidence issues that all come out of a... Uh, uh, some element of self-righteousness and all of the issues that come along with that. I want you to stay there. That's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember you. This is one of the greatest lessons any of us can learn. I think most of you looking around probably have learned this thing. Often, the easiest way out is to stop thinking about yourself. Just stop thinking about yourself for a moment, will you? Self this, self that, self that's usually one of the, um, the, the earmarks. When you talk to someone who's been stuck for a while, they always talk about themselves. It's always about them. Me, 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 me. You, you might get a little smidgen in there once in a while, but it's pretty much me, 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 me. They only want to talk about me because they're self-everything. And if they just connected the dots, they said, like this lesson, the reason you're there is because you're so stinking self-absorbed 
If you just got away from yourself and did as Jesus did and start living for others, you'd forget about self. Self-dash would fall off. Christ-dash would supplant it. Next thing you know, you have Christ-confidence, Christ-righteousness, Christ-esteem, etc., etc. And you're off and running. You went whipping out the. You went out with that door. You even you say, "Woo, woo, yeah." <laughs> right? And you didn't have to do anything except stop thinking about yourself. Stop being so arrogant and self-absorbed. I know that's how I was, to be totally honest. When I was in my little state of, you know, depression, lowliness, because I was focused on myself. God's probably up to like the angels, like, "Come on, guys, it's time to play the chorus again." He's he's going at it again. <laughs> uh, do not become depressed about failing. We found some additional encouragement from James. On Sunday up here on the board, James 5.11, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. Let us not forget that. The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. If we consider all that the Spirit just pointed out in Lamentations 3 regarding remember, remembers, recall, here's what we need to remember in a very practical sense up here on the board. This was from Sunday as well. We are not allowed to fail so that Satan can take advantage of us. God knows we're going to fail. But he doesn't do it so that Satan, so that you can get even weaker in the sense that Satan can now dominate you forever. Let's call it, let's change out Satan even for sin. Teshuka, sin can dominate you indefinitely. That's not why he allows you to fail. So we have to concentrate again. On Sunday, the Spirit reminded us that God allows failure. But to the person clinging to the promises of God, this isn't the final say on the matter. Here's something very encouraging for all of you up here on the board. Grace is always victorious. With believers, sin never has the final say. Isn't that awesome? We win. We go to heaven. We win. It tortures us on here on earth, right? Amen? But in the end, we win. But even experientially, we have the power of God inside of us in the ability then to be delivered from sin. Sin never has the final say with a believer. We are not, remember at salvation, as I've taught you, we're not even under the dominion, the dominion of sin anymore. We've been moved. We're under a new sovereign We see grace as victor. Go to Romans 5.20. We see it here, that's for sure. Grace is victorious. Grace is always victorious, to echo the point on the board. With believers, sin never has the final say. It's going to tell you it does. That's how it keeps you down. But it does not have the final say. Romans 5.20. Just a principle here. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? This is just the typical, let's call it the typical Paul checkpoint balance statement because he knows people the same way yours truly knows people. 
if you get running with, all right, so there are entire, there are entire ministries out there that call themselves grace, you know, hyper, I call them hyper grace ministries. All they ever focus on is grace. They get so focused on grace, they become licentious. And so Paul says, no, 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 we have to have a little checkpoint. Let's not get carried away because, you know, the flesh is like, ooh, all right, so you put me out, you extinguish my flame over here, I'm just going to pop up over here. And I'm going to abuse grace now and turn it into a license to sin. And then I'm going I'm to justify it by saying, yay, I get to bring glory to God because God's glorified when he picks me back up. Right? And they get this whole economy going like, ooh, we're such manipulative jackasses, aren't we? We find any way to, to do what it is we want to do. And so what Paul said and what we learned on Sunday up here on the board is an old topic that we studied in greater detail probably a couple years ago now, getting mercy right. Mercy isn't a pre-sinning form of encouragement. It is a post-sinning ointment. We have to get that right. I taught you this on Sunday. It's the sphere of mercy. It's understanding and living in a sphere. It's not transactional. You don't point to mercy and say, well, tit for tat. Right? Well, you know, it's like a tra- I, I, I spent a dollar, you spend a dollar on me. That's transactional, right? That's, that's like a worldly economy. You do this for me, I do it back. It's creature credit, right? Grace isn't like that in any sense of the word. Mercy isn't a pre-sinning form of encouragement. It is a post-sinning ointment. If our viewpoint of God's mercy somehow leads us to sin, whatever that perverted viewpoint is, however you might identify it in yourself, if your viewpoint of God's mercy somehow leads you to sin more, something's wrong in your soul. It is merciful of God that we die eventually so that we can be fully sanctified in heaven. Again, verse uh, 1 of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And what does Paul say? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin live in it? Still live in it. You've been delivered from sin. Anything that says stay there experientially is a lie. You have to remember It's a lie. You have to remember the promises of God, who say he'll even deliver you from the temptation to sin every time, if you're humble. If all of a sudden you become self-absorbed and self-dash everything, next thing you know, you're in misery, you fail the test, and Satan's got, or uh, sin's got you pinned up here on the board. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How do we still live in it? The very definition of, of, of of the, uh, the domain of sin is spiritual death, is separation from God. Wait a minute, we've been made children of God. We shouldn't think that we're separated from God. We shouldn't think that we don't have access to His grace 24-7, because we do. God's good intention isn't that we fail for the purpose of injuring ourselves, that He allows us to reap what we sow. When we fail, God's grace is put on full display, and it's glorious. His faithfulness ought to engender confidence in us all. Since none of us have made it yet, we must be equipped with the Word of God to ensure our deliverance. When you are faced with confessing sin, we're coming back now, when you are faced with confessing sin, if you are well equipped to deal with it, filled with the Word and the Spirit, in other words, deliverance comes easily and consistently. And so the process, we talked about the process on Sunday, putting process to all this, it becomes easier. For example, up here on the board, 
What about this process? What about this little thing that we all go through on a daily basis? We're at a crossroad. Failure is a crossroad. Every time we confess our sin, we stand at a crossroad. Okay, I failed. I have two options. To one side, there's condemnation. Allow sin to keep you down. Stay down. Go ahead, wallow in self-persisting misery. Or, to the other side, is salvation. Get up. Because God is gracious. And His loving kindness and His faithfulness is renewed. How often? Every morning. The righteous person gets up every time, glorifying God in the process. Proverbs 24, 10-16. Of course, the key uh, verse there up here on the board. Proverbs 24, 16. For a righteous man falls seven times and rises again. So the key point this evening has been up here on the board. And I would even swap that out. I probably should have done that for you. We are not allowed to fail so that Satan or sin can take advantage of us. That's not why God allows us to fail. All right. So with what time I've got? I've only got 10 minutes left. Let's revisit Paul's encouraging words again. Go to Philippians 3.13. Philippians 3.13. And keep that word remember at the forefront of your mind because that's what the Spirit's trying to empower you with. That's how he works, isn't it? I mean, you don't, he doesn't like literally physically pick you up, does he? No, he empowers this right here. That's it. Change of perspective. He says, I'm going to change your perspective on this thing. It's going to give you the power to get the heck out of this place. This, out of the doldrums, out of the hopelessness. So we are not to take the lie from the sin nature in us that we're supposed to stay down because we failed. Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Up here on the board, reaching forward to what lies ahead. Mercy is a pull mechanism. Is a pull mechanism. It pulls us out of failure mode, keeping us from becoming depressed. It isn't meant to pull us into the ditch or say push if you want to do it that way. It pulls us out. It doesn't push us into the ditch. It doesn't pull us into the ditch. It's meant to pull us. It's, uh, it isn't meant to pull us into a ditch or push us into a ditch. Only pull us out of it. In other words, mercy is never a license to sin. Verse 14. We understand that. Then we understand 14. It becomes richer and richer. Holy Scripture becomes richer and richer to us. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, with what little time we have left, we need to step way back now. Way back. Just take, take a deep breath. Think about what the Spirit's been saying. I know this is almost a do-over. I, I realize that. Some of you are like, yeah, I don't do that. I mean, that's to your own detriment, right? I mean, that's exactly what the Spirit's trying to say. That's just too, that's self-absorption at its best. If you know it's a do-over, and you say it probably is, but you're too self-absorbed to do it, there you go. Self-anything. If you don't need it, well, that's between you and the Lord. Anyways, stepping way back. Remember how all of this builds into the series up here on the board, Proverbs 3.26, For the Lord will be your confidence, 
and will keep your foot from being caught. It was at this point in Sunday's message that the Spirit forced us to become quite practical about our lessons. Here's where he threw down the gauntlet, as it were. And I've already alluded to it about five minutes ago up here on the board in terms of confessing sin. The final frontier for most of us is our lifestyles. The final frontier for most of us is our lifestyles. Confessing, saying the same thing. In other words, if, if you were to have an out-of-body experience and your life, all of it, was in front of you on the floor and you were standing here and the Lord Jesus Christ was standing right there, that you too would say the exact same thing about what you see. Your whole life. That's what confession is. That's what it means to confess your life. Hey, Jesus, do you see the same thing? Jesus probably look at most of them and be like, are you kidding? How long have you been lying to yourself? Look at that thing. This thing's a turd, right? <laughs> but yeah, we're like, no, look at it, look at it. We spray paint it with some gold flex paint, right? Look at it, oh, it shines. Just get, just get the right light. Yeah, you mean like the, the angle that all your friends look at? You just polish that side up? It's just this awful-looking half-moon facade, and it's completely empty on the inside, like a whitewashed tomb type thing? You mean like that? Yeah, we have to, we're supposed to say, in that scenario, we're supposed to say the same thing about what we see as Jesus would say about what he sees. Or the mirror example is just the same if he was standing right next to you. Hey, what do you see in the mirror? So the final frontier for, for I shouldn't even say for most of us. I would argue it's for everyone, but so nobody stumbles. For most of us, is our lifestyle. 1 John 3.18 in the Amplified up here on the board. Little children, believers, dear ones, let us not love merely in theory with word. What's the greatest law of all? To love. Okay? That's why I'm using love. Let us not love merely in theory with word or with tongue, giving lip service to compassion, but in action and in truth and practice and in sincerity because practical acts of love are more than words. So you mean I can't just, I can't prop up like good things that I've said throughout the day? Are they good? Yeah, I guess so. But is that the end goal, that you have a little trophy section? Like you have a little trophy case at the end of each day, and that's what you point to? And the rest of your life is gross and grotesque? It's like I said on Sunday, and someone actually enjoyed this too. Let me see if I can remember how to phrase it. Uh, most of us, or a lot of us, have sinful lifestyles with moments of living for Christ. What he wants, what we should be seeking for, is a whole life living for Christ that's interrupted by times of sinning. Do you see the difference? Most, well, religion, in effect, is the prior. I'm going to live in the flesh, and then just have little moments that I can point to. Each day I'm going to build a trophy case, and I'm going to invite people in and say, look at my trophy case. Look what I did today. See, boom, 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 boom. Don't look at me. <laughs> I'm a mess. Look at my trophy case. Don't look behind the curtain. Look at my trophy case. That's just what the Pharisees did. Well, Jesus said, I never knew you. 
But didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? Didn't we do this? They had a trophy case, right? Didn't, I, didn't we do all this stuff? Yeah. But look at you. Ooh. Ooh. You mean you want me to confess my whole life to you? Exactly. I want you to confess your whole life to me. Not your little religious games. I want you. The Bible says, let no one deceive you with empty words. That's Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Words void of substance. And that, of course, includes and begins with deceiving ourselves. Let no one deceive you with empty words. That begins with ourselves. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this evening. Thank you for truth that sets us free. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to our homes and then out to a, a world that's just decaying. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.